0: Father, as we come to this passage, it is fitting that we have read and sung what we have sung. It is fitting for what will we say to a salvation which has been granted to us with such profound grace and amazing mercy, but to say thank you. And so our worship, both individually and corporately, this morning is to be drawn to you and to affirm to you our great gratitude for what you have done in our lives, how you have graced us. And we must come with gratitude for as we have already sung We are the lost and helpless ones, the rebels and the renegades who spurned Your holy love. Everyone has gone astray and followed after lies, but You have loved us and opened up our eyes. This plan of salvation, this gift of salvation is Your work. It's Your power. It's your authority. It's your choosing. It is your saving. It is your preserving. It is everything about you. And Father, as we come this week to serve, might we come as those who have been fed on a grand picture of Your great glory. So would you, would you quicken our minds and our hearts to delight in You, the great God, this morning. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. Well, we have been talking over the last weeks about um, God's gift of salvation. We've been talking in Romans chapter 9 about how God has... Um, sovereignly chosen and designed who will come to salvation and then how that salvation is actually played out in people's lives. And it's a, it's a story, as we've looked at Romans chapter 9, it is a story of God's justice and it's also a story of God's mercy. It's a story of justice in that we understand that God is certainly just. He certainly will not let the guilty go unpunished. He will execute His wrath. He must, because He is holy and He cannot overlook sin. He must and He will pour out His wrath on all sinners. And there's nothing unfair about that judgment that comes from God. Whenever and wherever God judges, He is always fair, He is always righteous, He is always holy. But, but in contrast to what many think and believe, God is more than just a, a God of wrath. He is also a God of mercy and a God of grace. And it's that truth that we've also seen in this chapter. He is a God who withholds His wrath at times and who pours out blessing and riches and kindness at other times. And as we noticed last week, the, the gift of God's grace is a diamond that is held up against the backdrop of His wrath, now the exercise of god 's wrath and, and god 's mercy raises a series of questions in Romans chapter nine and and the questions that that Paul is addressing address the fairness of God the, the rightness of God in choosing and electing and then and then God, the fairness of god's pouring out his wrath. On those who are rebellious against him, and and the question is: Is is God fair in doing these things? Is is this a right thing for God to do? Is 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 it an appropriate thing to do? And the question of God's fairness certainly was alive in Paul's day. That's why he was addressing these anticipated questions. But. But it's also alive in our day as well. People question whether or not God is fair. And if you if you don't know whether or not pe- people think God is fair or not or whether they wrestle with the fairness of God, just just go in your neighborhood and talk to some people who you meet on the street or or go with your children to a ball game. And, and as you're sitting in the stands, just turn to the person next to you and ask him about the fairness of God. Or, or go to your workplace and ask some of the people you work with, is God fair when... When people who are seemingly innocent have their homes destroyed and even die in a hurricane, as we saw in the Bahamas this last week, is God fair? And and people will will inevitably say, no, there's there's an unfairness to God that that He hasn't acted in fair and kind ways. Why, why does God do those things? Where is God when those things happen? God isn't fair. And the question about God's fairness is actually a subset to a question that Paul began addressing earlier in this chapter. And it's really a question about the faithfulness of God. And the question about god 's faithfulness comes out of Romans chapter eight, so in Romans chapter eight God excuse me paul has has given us a great picture of what God has done in saving mankind. Now the spirit of God comes and, and works salvation in the lives of believers, and he culminates this chapter about the Spirit's salvation, the Spirit's sanctifying work, and he says in verses 38-39, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's salvation is so certain that nothing can prevail against it. No person can prevail against it. No, no angelic being can prevail against it. Circumstance cannot prevail against it. If God has saved someone, they will be saved. Which raises the question, what about Israel? Israel. And that's the question that Paul begins addressing in Romans chapter 9 at the beginning of the chapter. What about Israel? If God has covenanted to save the nation of Israel and Israel as a nation has not yet been saved, is God really faithful? He hasn't been faithful to the covenant promise of Israel, to Israel, and if He's not faithful to Israel, will He be faithful to us? Will He save us? Can we trust Him with our salvation? And Paul's answer is a fourfold answer through this chapter. It is an answer that says that in divine election he has chosen some individual Israelites to be saved, though though the fulfillment of the plan for the nations is still ahead. And he will tell us more about that in chapter 11. He's also answered this question about the faithfulness of God by saying that, that God's mercy on some and His hardening of others is a means of proclaiming the greatness of His name among the nations. That's verse 17 of, of chapter 9. So that so that His name would be proclaimed throughout all the earth so that, so that the, all of the earth and all of the nations will know of the greatness of God's character and His salvation. The third answer is that is that God is sovereign, and as a sovereign God, He is greater than than a potter who has a small degree of sovereignty over the things that He creates. And if a potter is sovereign over His creation, then certainly God is even more sovereign over all of His creation. And this morning we will see a fourth answer, that His mercy and hardening was also for the purpose of folding gentiles into his plan of salvation that's verses 24 to 26 a plan a plan that was even foretold in the old testament as we look at verses 24 to 26 this morning we're going to see that god's elective salvation is always merciful even to even to gentiles god's salvation mercy and God's salvation is always merciful. Even to Gentiles, even those of us who weren't part of the plan to Israel have received mercy from God. In what ways is God's salvation plan? In what ways is God's elective salvation merciful to us? It is merciful to us in four ways. The first of those is given in verse 23. God's election is a revelation of the riches of His glory. If you want to see the riches of God's glory, then look to His elective plan of salvation. And to capture this, let's go back for just a moment and pick up on some things that we skipped over last week in verse 23. God's elective, God's election is a revelation of the riches of God's glory. And one of the things we noticed last week is that the God's judgment is a demonstration of God's just purposes. So when God judges, He is demonstrating some particular purposes that reveal Him. And one of the things that the God's judgment reveals is His power. We see that in verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known? His wrath, His judgment, His condemnation of sinners is a way for us to see that He has power over sinners. In fact, John will pick up a similar kind of theme in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. He says this, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. So we've seen his salvation, we've seen his power, we've seen his authority. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. So Satan has access to God and can go into the presence of God, and he says, now Satan has been thrown down. And Satan has been cast out and that is to demonstrate that God has power over Satan. That Satan doesn't usurp and supplant God's power, but, but God is powerful over Satan, but not just powerful over him, he's also authoritative over him. He has the right to demonstrate that power against Satan. And, And this is a similar kind of idea as it's going on in verse 23. He made known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. He, he, uh, excuse me, that's verse 23. Verse 22, He was willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known. Not just make known the power, but make known the authority that He has to carry out His power. Another purpose in His wrath and His judgment is to reveal His patience The Lord has a great reluctance to punish sinners. He is slow to punish sinners. He is not vindictive. He is not capricious. He is patient with sinners. Remember the the story of, of Abraham and Lot? Genesis chapter 18. So God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and abraham appeals to the lord and he says what about if what about if there are 50 people who follow you who believe in you will you will you relent if there are 50 people who believe and god says if there are 50 who believe then i will relent and then he says what if what if there aren't 50 but they only lack 5 what if there are 45 will you will you relent if there are 45 who believe in you yes if there are 45 i will relent and and, and Abraham says, forgive me for asking, but, and, 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 and look upon me graciously, but, but if there are forty, will you relent if there are forty? And the Lord says, yes, if there are forty, I will relent. And, and Abraham keeps going down and he says, he says, forgive me for asking, but, and then if there are thirty, if there are twenty, if there are ten, will you relent and not pour out your wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, yes, if there are ten. I will not pour out my wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a reminder that God is patient with all men. He was patient with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's patient with Noah. He's patient with Jonah. He's patient with Pharaoh. He was patient with Judas. He was patient with the Jews. He is patient with all men, not condemning them at the at the moment of their first sin, or even at the moment of their birth. Listen, listen to uh, what Paul says, First Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 about himself even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief though he was rebellious against God he will say later that he was the chief of sinners and God was patient to him God is a patient God A third purpose in in His um, wrath and in His judgment is to reveal His glory. That's verse 23. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. We talk a lot about the glory of God. Where do you see God's glory? Where do you see the richness of, the vastness of God's glory. Well, you find it in a number of places. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 25. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake. O Lord, 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 would you forgive me so that you can be seen to be a good God? Same same uh, psalm verse eleven, Psalm twenty five verse eleven. For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. So I have this massive amount of of sin and rebellion against You. Would You forgive me, so that You can demonstrate the greatness and the magnitude, the glory of Your name? Psalm seventy nine nine. Help us. O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name and deliver us and forgive our sins for Your name's sake. Where will we see the glory of God and the wonder of God except in the forgiveness of sins? Psalm 106, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand Your wonders. They did not remember Your abundant kindness, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name that He might make His power known. Where will you see the glory of God? It is in the forgiveness of sins of those who are even greatly rebellious against God. We also see God's glory in choosing and electing sinners to be His despite their sin nature and despite the vastness of their sin. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Why does God pour out His grace in forgiving us so that we can see the magnanimousness, the the greatness, the exaltedness of His glory? And we also see His glory not just in His electing sinners and forgiving sinners, but we see His glory when He is unrelenting in His wrath against their rebellion And that's verse 23. He did so to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. He was willing to pour out his wrath and he withheld it. We see God's glory when he is unrelenting against sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The entire world is accountable to God. And when He pours out His wrath, we see that. And we not only see that, but we see the greatness of who He is. He is revealed as He is. That's His glory. And friends, we, we see these things and while they sound harsh, one of the ways that you will see the greatness of your salvation as we talked about last week is that this salvation is, as it were, a diamond. And that diamond shines most brightly. The facets of that diamond sparkle most magnificently when it is set against a backdrop of God's blackness of wrath when 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 we see the wrath of God and then see what God has graced us with and spared us from that salvation sparkles all the more magnificently I want you to notice particularly here in verse 23 that this glory is put on display by giving His mercy notice what He says To vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. That little phrase, vessels that he prepared beforehand for glory, emphasizes at least two things. One, it was his choice. He prepared the vessels for glory. They did not save themselves. They did not elect themselves. They did not prepare themselves. It was God's work alone that saved them. He prepared them. They did not prepare themselves. And then notice also this, there is no inherent value in the vessels. They are vessels of mercy. They are not vessels of adequacy. They are not vessels of self-righteousness. They are vessels that are dependent on mercy. They are people that are dependent on mercy. They are, they are people who are reliant on God to act on their behalf. They were, in fact, prior to being vessels of mercy, verse 22, they were vessels of wrath. They were born that way. They were born under wrath. They were born under judgment. They were born prepared for judgment. They were vessels of wrath, born that way, and they lived that way. And and those who were vessels of wrath, He said, I'm going to have mercy on. It is nothing that they have done on their own. It is nothing that they have accomplished on their own. This is God's work, and God's work alone for them to what end 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in a very similar theme the apostle says this verse 30 by his doing you are in Christ Jesus it's it's god's work that connects you to Christ that saves you in Christ who became to us wisdom from god and unrighteous and excuse me and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Your boasting is not yourself. Your boasting is not for what you have done. Your boasting, your pride, your delight, your joy is not in you, but in the God who has saved you. The boasting is about Him. Oh, my friend, When we receive this mercy, it should produce a continual overflowing of humble praise and gratitude. God saved me! Can you imagine? He saved me! Oh, friends, it is a mercy to us. And we see the wonder of His elective salvation and the mercy of that salvation when we see the riches of what His glory has accomplished in saving us. There's a second manifestation of God's mercy in His elective salvation. It's given in verse 24. God's election is for all mankind. It is for all mankind. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Some of you may be wondering, wait a minute, are all saved? Hang on, we'll get there. Who are the people that God prepared as vessels of mercy to know His glory. Who Who are the people that God says, I'm going to have mercy on them? It was the nation of Israel. And that goes back as far as Genesis chapter 12, as far back as Abraham, God set aside the nation of Israel to be recipients of His mercy. So, Genesis twelve one and 2, The Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will choose you, and I will use you, and I will make from you a great nation that I will be covenanted to forever. That covenantal relationship is expanded in chapters 15 and 18, Chapter 15 it says he god took him abraham outside and said now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them and god said to him so shall your descendants be and then he believed in the lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness it's it's this it's the choosing of this people to be god's forever and and, and and this is the theme that is that is all throughout the Old Testament, that God has chosen Israel to be His particular people. Let me just draw your attention to, to one more passage, Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, days are coming, Jeremiah 30, 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people." They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, all the Israelites. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. This is God's choosing of the nation of Israel. It's God working of His covenantal promises through the nation of Israel. They are His. So when Paul says... In uh, Romans chapter 9, they are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. It's the nation of Israel. And then Paul interjects a phrase that is most astounding. Notice verse 24. Even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. God's mercy was for Israel and God's mercy has been extended to the Gentiles as well. What, what Paul is emphasizing here is God's plan to call a people to be His. Notice verse 24, the emphasis is on that word calling. Even us whom He, emphasizing the one who has done it, He also called. He's focused on the fact that that God has drawn out even from the nations and called to salvation those who would be His not just from Israel but from all the nations on the earth. And, And what's often missed is that while God has chosen the nation of Israel to be His, He also chose the nation of Israel to be a beacon of light to the nations, so that the nations would come to know of God and His salvation through the nation of Israel. So Genesis chapter twelve, verse three. Again, this goes all the way back to the covenantal promise with Abraham: "I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So all the nations will will come to know the blessing of salvation through you, through Israel." It's not just in Genesis, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. So it's it's not just salvation of Israel, it's the salvation of the nations. Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people... As a light to the nations to open blind eyes to bring prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So so the light of the truth of the gospel of God as it's manifested ultimately in Christ is not just given to Israel, but it's given to Israel to go to the nation so that we also get the blessing of that. And where will that be seen? Listen... Isaiah 66, in the culmination of God's millennial kingdom, he says this, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors from from them to the nations, Tarshish, and Put, and Lud, and Meshech and Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they, Israel, will declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring in all your brethren from the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountains, says the Lord. So so the nation of Israel will go out and as it were into the highways and byways and compel people to come in and the nations will come flooding into Jerusalem. And then listen to this. I will also make some of them the nations for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Are we just kind of on the fringes? No. He says, my salvation is so magnanimous is that the nations will come in and serve as priests and Levites to Israel. Oh friend, th- this, is, this is the gift Of God's grace, that He has poured out His mercy not just on Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. Paul captures the sense of the astounding nature of our inclusion into this plan in Ephesians chapter 2. Just turn there for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. What has God done? In saving us, God has saved us, verse 10, and prepared us beforehand, same idea as we see in Romans 9, prepared us beforehand so that we should walk in good works. And then Paul, after having unfolded the greatness of his salvation, Wants the readers to meditate on something. So he says in verse 11, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. There he's pointing to the fact you're, you're Gentiles. Your physical lineage, your biology is not Israelite, but Gentile. And that's demonstrated by the fact that you haven't been circumcised. Notice what he says in verse 12. He wants These Gentiles who have been saved by God's grace to remember something. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time before your salvation separate from Christ. That is, you had no Messiah. The word Christ is the word Messiah. You had no Messiah. You had no Redeemer. You had no one to save you. Not only did you not have a Messiah, you were excluded, he says, verse 12, from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no citizenship. You had no citizen privileges. Not only that, he says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You you had no covenants. You had no promises made to you. You had no land, no king, no blessing. In fact, you did have one kind of a promise made to you, but it was the promise of God's wrath against you. You didn't have the promise of anything that would save you from that wrath. Notice what else he says. Having no hope. We had no hope. We had no expectation of any kind of kindness from God. We had no confidence that God would withhold His wrath from us. We had no hope that He would give us mercy. We had no confidence that He would give us grace. And in the ultimate demonstration of our hopelessness, he says, we were without God in the world. We had no relationship to Him. We had no desire for Him. We were completely ostracized from Him. We were forsaken by Him and abandoned by Him. No Messiah, no citizenship, no covenants, no hope, no God. And to those, friends, to us, to us, He has made us vessels Of mercy. You've received mercy. You who were outside have received mercy. The great news of the gospel is that people are chosen from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And God, God has chosen people from Israel to be vessels of mercy and He has chosen Gentiles to be vessels of His mercy. Gentiles who deserve His wrath and His condemnation, He has chosen from all the world and He is bringing them in to salvation. And friend, if that is you, you should be filled in your heart with humility and with joy and with gratitude. Friend, don't miss this point. Israel has been partially hardened so that you could be saved part of the blackness of god's wrath against which the diamond of our salvation is set is the condemnation of individuals who belong to god's chosen people and friend that that should humble you that that should give you pause for reflection and that should give you cause For joy as well. These verses remind us that salvation is for all mankind. Not, not meaning by that that all mankind will be saved, but that salvation is made available to all mankind, and that all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles, will be elect and will be saved. Oh, friend, let that overflow into praise another way that God's elective salvation is merciful is made evident to us in verse 25 and it is that God's election is despite man's prior relationship with God to demonstrate God's ability to call people to salvation Paul appeals to two passages in the book of Hosea In verse 25 he quotes from Hosea chapter 2 verse 23 and in verse 26 he quotes from Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, a verse that we read earlier. And he is using that passage to explain the character of God and the nature of God. You remember in Hosea the prophet is commanded to marry the adulterous Gomer as a picture of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. And Gomer's children are named the not so flattering names. She has not obtained compassion and, and he is not my people. How's that for a name to your kid? Uncompassionate, not mine. That's not going to go over very well in first grade. And it's indicative of the kind of relationship that God has with his people. They have been rebellious against him. They have they have fought against Him. They have hated Him. They have gone away from Him. And because of that, God is sending them into captivity in Assyria. And yet, and yet, later God will have compassion on Israel and He will keep His covenant with her and she will be called My people. Verse 23 of chapter 2. I will sow her for myself in the land. This is Hosea. And I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So they are rebellious and they are in a place where God would have a right to say, not mine. I quit. I give up. I walk away. And yet, he is a faithful kind of God who keeps his covenant even to that kind of people. Now the question is, if if that's what's going on in Hosea, how can Paul use that in Romans chapter 9? Because in Romans chapter 9, he's talking about Gentiles And the promise is made to Israelites. So Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel, is going into captivity in Assyria. And the promise is that those ten northern tribes will not be rejected, but they will be kept and God will keep His covenant with them. And so, how is Paul using that? Is has Paul just forgotten basic Bible interpretation and saying, "Well, I know this is for, for for Israel, but I'm going to apply it to the Gentiles as well," or has has the Church taken the place of Israel, and so that Israel is 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 rejected by God, and now God is fulfilling His promises to Israel through the Church? What's what's going on? How how is Paul using that verse? Now remember, the the question that Paul is answering is a question about the faithfulness of God. The question that's driving everything in chapter 9 is, is God faithful? And his answer is an unequivocal yes. For instance, verse, verse 6 of chapter 9, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God hasn't failed. God is faithful. And all through this chapter, he is demonstrating that he is faithful and he is fair. And notice particularly the emphasis in verses 24 and 25 is on the calling of God. So verse 24 even us whom he also called. So the emphasis is on the fact that God is the kind of God that can call even Gentiles to salvation and he emphasizes that by by using chapter 2 verse 23. The first thing he points out in in, uh, 2.23 of Hosea is that I will call those who are not my people. So God God called Israel and in the very same way that he called Israel to be his people he also called Gentiles to be his people in other words he is faithful to Israel we can trust him for our salvation he is a faithful kind of God he calls and when he calls he is faithful we saw that in Israel and we will see that in ourselves as well They will be called my people. In fact, not just in verse 23 does he emphasize that he is faithful to those promises, but just listen to the way he demonstrates his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy all through chapter 2. Let me start in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, that is Israel, Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, my husband. And no longer call me Bali, my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make them to lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in loving kindness and in compassion and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness then you will know the Lord that's what Paul wants us to see that when God calls people to be His He Is faithful even to those of us who are Gentiles who weren't part of the original plan, and He grafts us in and He puts us in. God is dependable in His faithfulness. We were a people who were not a chosen people. We were a people as Gentiles who were not loved and we were not lovable. We were disowned unapproved, destined for wrath, under eternal judgment. We didn't know the mercy of God. We did not seek the mercy of God. In fact, we hated God. We hated His mercy. We hated everything about Him. And to those kinds of people, God has made a faithful promise, I will place my love on you and show you compassion and make you my people. Oh friend, this is such good news this is such good news it is it is good news that there is hope for outcasts you ever felt like you were on the outside like you didn't fit into a group in a very simple way that was the way i felt for much of my growing up years as i thought about athletics and sports at recess you know when kids are dividing up for teams and picking teams i was always the last guy chosen I mean, I, I liked sports, and I knew what a particular ball might do, and you know what you're supposed to do with the ball, I just couldn't do it very well. And, and I wasn't particularly fit, I always ranged somewhere from a little bit overweight to a lot overweight, and nobody wanted me. I was the outcast. On the other hand, my brother was always fit, always, always coordinated, always knew what to do with the ball, and was able to do it like as soon as he picked it up, and he was always the first guy chosen. Not that I'm bitter about it or anything. <laughs> I was an outcast. You feel like an outcast this morning? You're sitting among a group of people that love Jesus Christ and you feel like an outcast? A fraud? fake? It's not me. I, I don't love Jesus. I'm not connected to Him. I'm not a Christian. My friend, I have good news for you. You should feel like an outcast because you don't measure up. You don't stack up. That's the bad news. You are an outsider. You won't ever be good enough for Christ. Here's the good news. The good news is Jesus only saves outcasts. He only saves those who are on the outside. Those who try to be self-righteous, those who try to get there on their own. You can't be saved that way. You will only be saved when you recognize you're an outcast and you must appeal to Him for grace. My friend, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're feeling like the outsider, oh friend, come running to Jesus and He will save you. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all friend if he can save the worst of sinner he can save you flee to him run to him without haste with haste and without delay and he will save you we see god's mercy in his elective purposes despite our prior relationship with God. You don't have to be good to get to God. You have to be bad to get to God, in a sense. Your prior fellowship with God cannot keep you away from Him. There's one last way that we see God's mercy. Verse 26, God's election is to a unique relationship. Remember that Hosea chapter 1 is talking about the captivity of Israel, about the promise of the coming captivity to Assyria. As you think about Israel and you think about their relationship to the nations, their their, their history is a story of captivity. It goes all the way back to to um, the patriarchs and Jacob and Jacob taking seventy people and going into Egypt for food, and then over four hundred years that they are there and they become captive to the nation of Israel and enslaved to the not Israel Egypt. They become enslaved to Egypt and and they're there in bondage. And, and not just in Egypt are they in bondage all those years, but now in Assyria the ten northern tribes are gonna go into captivity and, and that'll follow about a hundred years later with the captivity of the two southern tribes. They also will go into captivity in Babylon and, and when the nation was in its own land, it's just a, their, their history is just a, a history and a story of, of nation after nation invading the land and taking it over. Even when Jesus was alive, the, the Rome was governing over Israel. Their whole circumstance, their whole history is a story of captivity. Wherever wherever they were, they were in captivity. Listen to what Hosea says, this passage that Paul quotes in verse 26. Wherever it is said to them, You are not my people. That's their captivity. He's he's talking about their captivity. You're in captivity and you're in captivity because you are not the people of God. You've been rejected by God. God's, God's left you. You're on your own. You're not His people. You are not my people, God says. And it will be said to them, those who are in captivity, wherever they are in captivity, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. You're the sons of the living God. Friends, this is a stunning reversal. This is a result of God's elective saving plan in those places, the place where there is estrangement, the place where there's captivity. God has inserted Himself and said, I will save. And not just I will save, but I will make their name not captive, but sons of God. They're in in captivity because of rebellion and disobedience. In spite of that, God has made them His sons. Friends, this is the same thing that has happened to us. In spite of our rebellion, God has made us through Jesus Christ to be His sons. 8.15 of Romans. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We've been adopted in. We who are rebellious, we who deserve wrath, have been made sons. And notice not just that we are sons of God. Notice the end of verse 26. You are sons of the living God. God who is eternally alive, the God who never dies, the God who has always been, the God who always will be, that is the one who adopts us, and that is the one who brings us to life, and that is the one who makes us His sons. The one who is life, the one who is the source of life, gives us a new life as His children. We were headed to death, and He made us alive as sons. Not just alive, but into this unique Relationship as his sons. The kind of life he gives us is a sonship life. So one commentator says the people who were not God's people will be called nothing less than sons, with all the rights and privileges that that implies of one who is none less than God and living God at that. What do we say to this passage? What do we say to this Word of God? Let me just give you four quick points of application. This passage is for our evangelism. If Jew and Gentile are both saved by the same gospel, and both Jew and Gentile need to respond in faith, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 10. And if both Jew and Gentile are equally under God's wrath for their rejection of Him, then we need to be pursuing conversations by which we reveal the God who makes vessels of mercy to those who deserve His wrath. This, this passage is designed to invigorate our evangelism. This passage is also about our love for Israel. If God so cares about the nation of Israel that, that he, he will fulfill His promises to them, He's made a promise and He will fulfill it, then friends, we should love and pray for and work for the salvation of His people Israel. And this passage is for the unity of our church. Friends, there's no one who's superior and there's no one who is inferior. We are all equally needy before God. There is no one who can be haughty and frankly, there's also no one who should be morose. We are all in the same desperate position and if we have been saved, it is with the same blood and it is with the same cross and that should facilitate and make us to be one and to delight in our unity together. There's no one who is preeminent except Christ. And this passage is for our worship and praise. This passage is about God's greatness and God's glory. And because it is about Him, we should delight in Him, rejoice in Him, and thank Him. Our Father, we want to do just that as we close. To give You thanks for this amazing grace, this amazing gospel, this amazing mercy. We who are on the outside have been brought in who would have thought of that except you? And so, our Father, we thank You for this grace, how You will be faithful to Israel. And because You are faithful to Israel, we know You are a faithful covenant-keeping God and You will be faithful to us in our salvation as well. We thank You that our salvation will not disappoint us, but it will be for our great joy, our eternal great joy, and for your eternal glory. We thank you, Father. We praise the name of Christ in whom we pray. Amen.